0: Insecure, a security podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Global Security Challenges.
1: See it, say it, secure it. I am Dr. Malin a research fellow for the Centre for Global Security Challenges at the University of Leeds.
0: And I am Dr. Harry Swinho, a research fellow at the Centre for Global Security Challenges at the University of Leeds.
1: And together, we will be discussing security in an increasingly insecure world.
0: This podcast aims at bringing together postgraduate researchers, early career researchers, and established academics to discuss their research and explore the six core themes of the Centre for Global Security Challenges, gender security, global reordering, health security, peace and conflict, terrorism and political violence, and environmental security.
1: We launched the podcast and our first season in April 2021 with three episodes that you actually really liked. For the first season, we discussed climate security, terrorism, and the future of terrorism studies. And happy days, we are back for a second season. The second season will bring episodes on the future of security studies, gender security, and nuclear weapons, civil war, and more. So stay tuned.
0: In the meantime, you can find the first season of Insecure, a security podcast on Spotify, ACAST, SoundCloud, and at the Centre for Global Security Challenges website. Where you can also find out more information about the centre and its cutting edge research. Hey, Harry. Hey, Maureen, how are you?
1: I'm good. Feels kind of weird to be back after such a long time.
0: Yeah, it's been way too long. Definitely missed recording the podcast as I'm sure all of our fans did as well. But now we can definitely say we are back. We are launching our second season of Insecure Security Podcast.
1: Yes, so, so happy. Season one was actually such a success. You guys enjoyed it so much, and we had listeners all around the world. So thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, everyone. This podcast means a lot to the both of us. So thank you, everyone, who listened to season one and who's now coming back for more.
1: Well, I think the main question is why we have been away for so long. I think we've both been working on few projects. As for myself, I recently finished my PhD and really had to focus on submitting, passing the Viva. So that's why I've been a- away for so long and also working on postdoctoral projects. What about you, Harry?
0: Yeah, similar. So a nice mix of, I guess, kind of personal and professional reasons. So I had a sort of partnership last summer, which was great, but took a lot of planning. So, uh, you know, took a break from podcasting for that. And then I've been working on turning my thesis into a book proposal, which I've now kind of sent off and being reviewed, doing bits and pieces of research. So a paper that I presented at ISA that I think we're going to be talking about today when we talk about our research and then just doing what I know both of us have been doing which is just applying for jobs and postdocs and all of that kind of fun stuff so yeah
1: I can't wait for your book to be out so then we can all of us actually can read it I'm looking forward to that and yeah I think I mean let's not talk about this but job market is difficult at the moment in academia so yeah we are both looking for postdocs in case someone is listening to us (laughs) so you remember in season one in each of the episodes we were discussing terrorism studies the future of terrorism studies climate and the future of climate security and I wanted to like twist the question a little bit so Harry instead of asking what is the future of terrorism studies, and climate security. What is the future for your own research? And what are your future projects, actually?
0: Well, about two months ago now, I presented a paper at ISA, which I've been working on, which compared Hayatur al-Sham and its predecessor groups and Islamic states' approaches to the concepts of the nation-state and the idea of nationalism, which I found really interesting. So i just focus on Islamic State, English language propaganda for my PhD thesis. So it was great to look at a different group which emerged from the same place, had shared origins, but has moved in quite different direction and, you know, seems to be aimed at kind of different audiences. The concepts are quite different. The, I mean, the propaganda itself, the quality of the propaganda and kind of the themes that it focuses on is really different. So that was really interesting, kind of comparing these two groups and looking at something which I hadn't previously looked at before.
1: That sounds really interesting, Harry. I wondered if you could just maybe tell us a little bit more about narratives and other form of discourse briefly for our audience, because I know you're working on that and you just mentioned it. So maybe you can explain a little bit what it means.
0: Yeah, so I was presenting this paper as part of a panel organised by the Civil Wars Journal, which discussed the role of narratives and civil wars. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, both in that paper and which I've talked about in my PhD thesis, is this kind of heuristic distinction that can be drawn between narratives and other forms of discourse. So for me, narratives very much are a form of discourse. So if you take kind of fair close definitions of discourse, where he says that you can have discourse in a concrete sense as specific ways of representing the world and giving meaning to specific phenomena in the world, and then in a more abstract sense, discourse as language and other forms of semiosis within social life. That very much corresponds to how we understand narratives. So, you know, Miss Kimmen, Beno Loughlin, Laura Rizal talk about narratives as again giving meaning to phenomena in the world but also as dynamic social products which are continuously negotiated and renegotiated through interactions between actors. So for me narratives are very much a form of discourse and you can kind of use you know approaches like discourse analysis to look at them, but they're distinct from other forms of discourse because they have a very specific structure so narratives have a beginning middle and end they put forward an initial situation then some form of disruption to whatever this initial situation was and then a resolution to this kind of disruption in a way of you know returning to the initial situation or moving forward to a kind of better situation so it has that kind of storytelling structure that makes it distinct from other discourses and that's what I found both in my PhD research and in my recent research that I was talking about comparing Hayat Tahrir al-Sham and its predecessors with Islamic State is that I felt that Islamic State did have quite a specific narrative about nationalism and nation states that there was this initial period of, kind of harmony or unity in the Islamic world that nationalism is one of the things which disrupts this harmony, which disrupts this unity. And then the Islamic State is here to resolve that by destroying nationalism, by destroying the boundaries between nation states. Whereas for Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, there wasn't this kind of clearly structured narrative. There was more of a, oh, you know, nationalism is generally kind of bad, impious... But, you know, maybe there are certain ways in which we can talk about it kind of or elements of it more positively or less kind of a wholesale condemnation. But very much more ambiguous and less important without that clear narrative structure. So that for me is where the distinction between narratives and other forms of discourse come in. I
1: actually have one question. It's actually super interesting when you talk about like narrative versus non-narrative, I guess. And this idea of discourse is different. Do you think political discourse, when you look at, for instance, the UK doing, or the government in the UK doing a political speech or something like that, do you think it has this element of narrative, like a beginning, middle and end, or is it just because you're looking at terrorist, Islamist discourse?
0: So, again, I think it depends specifically what you're looking at. So you definitely do see narratives and not just narratives, but the kind of strategic narratives that Miss Kim and et al. would talk about, some narratives that are being formed with strategic agency by actors for certain political or policy reasons. You know, so I guess if you talk about the kind of narrative around the idea of global Britain, which was, you know, common at one point, it's kind of faded a little bit into the background, but, you know, this idea that at one point Britain was a kind of global, buccaneering, mercantile-trading nation that that became disrupted, whether that's by the decline of British imperialism or accession to the EU or something like that, and that a particular form of conservative politics is here to restore that situation and restore Britain's mercantile, buccaneering nature with trade deals here, there and everywhere. You know, that's a very clear narrative structure and narrative discourse, but at the same time you see... You know, you do see other forms of discourse that less clearly have that kind of beginning, middle, end. So in the article that I had published back in 2021 about the way in which British political elites were kind of policing the boundaries of religion and saying that members of terrorist organisations were inherently not Muslims because of their actions, that was... Not really a narrative. There was no story there. It was a kind of discourse that they were trying out that was trying to construct kind of certain identities that at times was used very instrumentally for actually, I guess, a relatively brief period in the 2010s and that now seems to have kind of gone out of fashion. But there was no kind of narrative structure there, no beginning, middle end. So I think, yeah, so I think you do see the distinction between those types of discourses in every context, because they have different uses.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this in-depth analysis. Yeah, that's really interesting, because it made me also reflect on things that I do with political discourse. So that's that's really interesting. Reflecting on that, do you think you're going to publish that at some point? Or is there any particular article or paper you've been working on the past few weeks or months, even, because we've been away for so long?
0: Yep, yeah, so my plan is that that paper will be published at some point. I wanted to do both a content analysis and discourse analysis as parts of that paper. So the content analysis would be to track the relative importance of these ideas of nationalism and nation state in the English language propaganda produced by the two groups and also show how that has changed over time. So, do you see? kind of more references to these terms or concepts in certain years. And then the discourse analysis to look at specifically how those discourses are created, how they relate to identity construction, so both the groups constructing their own identity and their identity in relation to other groups. So I've done a good chunk of it. I just need to do a little bit more. So need to do some more work on the content analysis. It's getting, as all of these papers do, fairly long. So then you get to the question of, do you try and cut it down drastically or do you try and split it into two? But yeah, my plan is to write it and then kind of see what I'm left with. But hopefully it will be published at some point.
1: Oh yeah, I understand the feeling of like, okay, I have too many ideas. I can't write one paper on this. I need to write two or three papers, even. Yeah, it's difficult. It's challenging. But yeah, I'm very looking forward to seeing it published. So I'll keep my eyes peeled for this article. And we'll share it with our audience when it's out.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much. I think we've been talking about me a bit too much at the start of the podcast. So we'll move on to talking about you and your research. So Maureen, what about you? What have you been working on for the past few months? What's the future of your research? Where do you want to take it?
1: Well, apart from submitting this thesis and passing the viva, I've been busy with quite a few projects, whether it was like going on conferences, as we all do, you know, to disseminate our research, or working on draft articles that you just like start and then leave for a few months and then come back to, or I even also work on some research assistant jobs, so... That's why I was busy. But yeah, one of the things that I've been working on, and that took me a little bit of time, and it was after a conference that I attended. And it's basically a book chapter for an edited volume with the Manchester University Press, which should be coming up soon, I hope. And basically, I discuss the colonial legacies of the French counterterrorism strategy, which is kind of based off from my thesis. And I look at how the counterterrorism strategy securitizes the terrorist bodies to respond to the threat of terrorism. So I don't only look at the threat of terrorism framing, but more the body of the terrorists. And therefore, I discuss the French political construction, the discourse and the narrative as well of the terrorist order and how it informs the coloniality of power being, non-being, as a contemporary form of imperialism and colonialism, which is reproduced and reified within the French counterterrorism strategy. And so it basically looked at the construction of the other, you know, like in this orientalist critical analysis. And this other is represented through the political narrative and it impacts ultimately the French Muslim community due to the racialization, the stigmatization, and discrimination towards the French Muslim community. And another thing that I've been working on is, so I attended another conference in July, EISA, and it was a workshop where basically a CTS group was meeting, and we were discussing postcolonial and decolonial approach in terrorism studies. And from that, we decided to do a special issue, which will be published at the Cambridge Review of International Affairs. And I contributed to it with one paper, which is also based on my thesis. And it's actually looking at, again, the French counterterrorism strategy, the colonial legacies. But this is more on the notion of securitization. So Firstly, I analyzed the political discourse and the framing of the terrorist threat to uncover the securitization where I actually argue that it's a continuum process rather than a rupture process in November 2015. So based on a critical discourse analysis, I engage with the debate around the constructed notion of temporality and the work of Jarvis. So what does temporality means, and what it means for emergency powers, what it means for securitization. Because usually in securitization theory, we discuss this notion of emergency, which needs to be temporal. There is a rupture moment. That's why we securitize a threat. Actually, I criticize this. And I think that is the threat of terrorism has been continuously framed that way. And it's not like a rupture or a temporal rupture, but it's actually a continuity. And that's why I bring this notion of a colonial continuities in the way they frame the threat, in the way they frame the terrorist others, and also even the powers, the counterterrorism powers are based on a law that was designed during the Algeria war. So yeah, basically looking at securitization of terrorism, the so-called emergency powers implemented it and the critique around the notion of rupture, temporal rupture. And in this paper, again, I examine also the extension of emergency powers after the three months of application, which was justified in November 2015, but then has been extended. And it questioned the concept of like desecuritization in securitization theory. And my paper and also my thesis argues for with the threat of terrorism, we can't see a desecuritization. So the, the nexus securitization, desecuritization is not working with terrorism when counterterrorism powers are based in colonial legacies. So this is basically what I'm arguing. And I focus on this um, analysis of the extension of emergency powers from an unprecedented to an ongoing threat and a permanent threat of terrorism from an exception to a normalized exceptions and this draw on colonial lineage and on colonial legacies. So yeah. That's it.
0: That's great. Thank you. And it's really interesting because I guess now in like critical terrorism studies, maybe terrorism studies more generally, there's this discussion about how talk of terrorism is declining, terrorism as a focus for kind of state security Seems to be fading into the background, you know, things related to uh, Russia's war in Ukraine and the so called re emergence of great power conflict. And I mean, we saw it in the UK when uh, David Amos was killed by someone who was motivated by jihadism uh, or a kind of uh, jihadist ideology, but the discussion was all around kind of social media uh, civility and kind of abusive of politicians on social media so yeah there seems to be kind of less talk about terrorism but the powers stay all of the kind of counter-terrorism apparatus stays in place and remains the same so i guess is that kind of what you're talking about
1: i don't know if it's really related but yeah there's something i want to investigate and i'm actually working on at the moment is like the everyday i think this is an emerging discussion within terrorism studies and CTS, so critical terrorism studies is the everyday right. We've seen the work on Jarvis, etc. And I think at least for the case of France, the discussion is not so much around terrorism, counterterrorism anymore. Like we don't see in the public debate or on social media about okay, there is a terrorist threat, but the counterterrorism powers are still very much implemented other reasons beyond the scope of terrorism, beyond the scope of counterterrorism or violent extremism. I mean, this is a paper working on, and you know that, Harry, because I've been talking about it with you, is the use of this counterterrorism powers beyond the scope of terrorism, counterterrorism, is more on using those powers, using those laws for other reasons. So we've seen it when France declared the state of emergency in 2015. They've been using counterterrorism powers, emergency powers for drug prevention, for instance, which is beyond the scope of terrorism, right? And beyond the scope of counterterrorism. And now in 2023, we have seen the way they use counterterrorism powers to reduce the rights to protest in France, especially after the bill passed with the Retirement legal age. The French have been protesting, and the police and the government has used counterterrorism law to limit or restrict or even ban rights to protest. So yeah. I don't know if that really answered the question.
0: I think it it definitely does, and kind of or addresses it as like an ongoing question that needs further work. Because again, we're seeing similar things in the UK, particularly with the use of counterterrorism anti-terrorism legislation to try and prosecute let's say climate change protesters and people like that
1: yeah and also I think this is something we will be looking at as well in the episode that is coming up where Louise is talking about how UK prevent has been implemented during the coronation as well so definitely it's you know we talk about the vernacular securitization the everyday but it's also a conversation that we need to have on the everyday, you know, because this is really and truly important. And I don't think it's been enough on the public debate as well, how they use powers that they shouldn't use beyond the scope, in a way.
0: Yeah, I think this is maybe something that needs like a a whole another kind of podcast episode. So I think we'll definitely have to keep this in mind for the future. So, yeah, then what I wanted to ask you going back to talking about your specific research is where do you see it going? So I know that you've recently been talking about the continual colonial legacy of French involvement in the Sahel and that that's something that you're wanting to look at as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I want to extend the research that I've done for my PhD and instead of, well, only looking at the national counterterrorism strategy now i want to look at also what has been done by the french troops or by the french counterterrorism strategy on the outside space so basically beyond the borders of france i'm not going to say exactly what i want to <laughs> i want to do but yeah there's something i want to i want to work on is is this notion of space is the notion of um coloniality of space and the french counterterrorism strategy and military intervention in the Sahel. So, yeah, and this is part of potentially a postdoctoral project.
0: Yeah, and looking forward to hopefully that kind of research progressing. Now, I guess this is Bini episode, so you've probably heard enough from us for now just to give you a taste of what's to come in the series.
1: Yeah, it it was nice to actually come back and I think the best way for us to come back was to give you a bit of context also you must be wondering even though we kind of tease it a little bit what is the future for this podcast?
0: I'm sure you've heard if you've been following us on Twitter or social media output we have been preparing season two so it's going to start with the release of this mini episode on us and our research Catch everyone up on what we've been doing, but there is a lot more coming this season.
1: Yes, actually, we can maybe tease some of the upcoming episodes. What do you think before summertime?
0: Yeah, for sure. I guess we'll try not to do like too many spoilers. The so the episodes we have been working on the past few months. One will be around the future of security studies, integrating it with pedagogy and teaching, because we recorded it through a panel Q&A with some students in the University of Leeds. So it's really interesting to get their questions and see them as emerging scholars and what that generation, I guess kind of the generation below us, is thinking about security studies and how they're interacting with security studies.
1: And there will be also another episode, and then we stop spoiling too much, So there will be another episode before summertime based on the CGSC and EGIS conference. And this will showcase security in time of polycrisis, a conference that actually happened in May
0: 2023. Lastly, all the episodes that we've got coming up, but we will have an episode with the Civil Wars team, the team from the Civil Wars Journal, who are doing some really exciting work at the moment. That will be with Dr. James Worrell, to alex waterman and with maggie pengilly so we're very excited about that well that was great we would like to thank everyone who's listening to our podcast please continue to stay tuned for the rest of season two which will be coming over the next few weeks and months. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other major podcast apps and platforms to get future episodes directly into your feed. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please remember to leave us a rating and review.
1: Stay tuned. And in the meantime, you can always listen and re-listen to our first season. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on Insecure Security Podcast. As Harry said, our next episode is coming out actually next week, and is looking at the future of security studies with a panel of guests: Whiskers, Jack Holland, James Wall, Roa Konsaline, Lucas Debelmont, and Mohamed Abdi Mohammed. But until then, stay safe, stay secure. Bye for now. It was Harry and Mahim. Insecure. A security podcast.